Take your Bibles and turn to Romans 3 with me. Romans chapter 3. The title of the sermon should be fairly clear, A New Year. We've just entered into a new year, calendar-wise, an old problem. We're faced every day, not just every year, with the same old problem, and that's sin. I uh, can imagine right now my children and some of you who are Andy Griffith connoisseurs are remembering a particular episode where a guest preacher came into town to preach on Sunday. A sermon through which Barney slept. And upon exiting the building and shaking hands with the pastor and the guest preacher, who, by the way, was something resembling Harry Emerson Fosdick, that's just for historical note there. If you want to know who Harry Emerson Fosdick, that rascal was, early 20th century, troubler of the church, I can tell you later. But everyone's saying what a wonderful sermon it was and Barney, and it was a sermon about what's your hurry? Slow down, enjoy life. And Barney says, Yep, yep, that was a wonderful sermon, preacher. You can never hear too much about sin. And there was not a note in the sermon about sin. So, this sermon is about sin. So if you sleep through it and you come out in a few moments and say, yeah, you can never hear too much about sin, well, you got it right, but you may have missed the whole point. Let's read these. We've just read a number of these verses from Psalm 53. So it's going to sound very familiar. So don't be shocked. Paul has, uh, has been talking a lot about sin. Sin is common to both Gentile and Jew. That's what the first two chapters are all about. And that's the theme he brings over into chapter 3 through chapter 3, verse 20, before he picks up with the remedy for sin, which is the righteousness of God, which was fulfilled in Christ Jesus and is applied to God's people imputed to them so that they might not die in their sins. And this is how he turns their attention to the great need, the ultimate need that they have in Christ. He says this, what then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin 
and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we do thank you that your word endures forever. We're reminded in the Old Testament how that uh, the law of God, which was written upon Adam's heart, Eve's heart, communicated to, to all of their progeny, and yet as it's communicated on our hearts, it can be hardened. The truth, the reality of it can be, can be dampened. And so you tell us in the giving of the law for, for writing, for, for etching into the stone and ultimately inscripturating in your holy word that you gave the law in writing because of the hardness of our hearts, because we can suppress the truth, we can, we can push it out of our minds and out of our sights. We thank you for your word that reminds us always it's placarded before our very faces if we, if we but turn to it. We thank you for giving it to us that we might not grow cold and so die in our sins. We ask now that you would use this time for your holy purposes to make your people more like Christ and to call others who may not know Christ to salvation, that they might see how terrible sin is and look to Christ. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I have a, uh, an associate Reformed Presbyterian minister friend who uh, I've heard say this more than once. We have the best doctrine of sin available to man. And we act like we don't believe it. Now here's what he was saying. We say that men are sinners. All men are sinners. We even testify as we have this morning that even regenerated men still have sin in them and still sin. And can do some horrific things. Even Christians. And yet we walk around like the secular world saying, oh, they're fine. Uh, Carol and I were watching just last evening the conclusion of a uh, British mystery called Silent Witness. And there was this father whose son had, had killed someone. And he just kept saying, oh, I, I, he, he's, but he's a good boy. He's a good boy. He just killed someone. Oh, he's a good boy. And we in the Reformed faith can live that way too. When, when instead we should live like the commercial. I'm, I'll, I'll testify to this. I hear commercials on the radio, and it would be hard for you to say, so what was that commercial for? Here's the commercial. 
I've heard it locally. I've heard it out of state. So apparently it's very popular. In God we trust, all others we monitor. That's really good. We don't trust one another, folks, and we shouldn't when it comes to sin. We only trust God. In God we trust all others we monitor. We keep our eyes on them. That's part of encouraging one another and building up one another. And, incur- and that's part of living in the church is we want to monitor one another. In fact, in Matthew chapter 7, you know, it begins, judge not lest you be judged. And people grab that one and they just misuse that one all over the place. Oh, don't, don't be judgmental. But in fact, if you read on in that paragraph, Jesus is saying that we are to be judgmental. That is, we are to monitor others according to his holy standard. Because it goes on to say, hey, don't judge them according to your standards. First, get the plank out of your eye so that you can see that little bitty speck of dust that got in their eyes so that you can help them. So it's all about judging judging according to God's standards. And that's the way we're supposed to do for one another. I've said this before, and I'll say it again. I'm, I'm blessed in so many ways, but one of, the, one of the ways that I'm blessed most in this context is that you have elders, and those elders work together, and I have, on more than one occasion, had the, the wonderful privilege of one of those elders or two of those elders coming to me and saying, you know, you were wrong about that. You shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have said that. You said that wrong. And I'm glad. Because none of us are gods. And none of us certainly are God. We can all make mistakes. We can all misspeak. We can all act wrongly. And we can justify it pretty easily. And again, back to the confession. We believe that even Christians can do that. Pastor Morris said last Sunday evening in his sermon on glorification, if if you weren't here, you missed it, and shame on you. But he said, we are not. In this life, glorified. Oh, we have, we have some already aspects of glory in us. And they kind of creep out and, and faintly show up every once in a while. He didn't say it quite like that. He's more eloquent than I am. But we're not finally glorified until... That last great day when our bodies are raised from the earth and our souls are reunited with them and we are then fully glorified. We do not believe in perfectionism. And if you'd like to read two wonderful volumes that tell you why you shouldn't believe in perfectionism. And there are people, there is a, a, a little sector of 
Christianity, and I use that word cautiously there, that teaches that you can be above sin. You can be outside of sin in this life. You, you can not sin. Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, B.B. Warfield, wrote two nice, thick volumes working you through the scriptures to show how terrible a doctrine that is and how damning it is to the church or anyone else to believe that. We do not believe that sin is eradicated from us when we are regenerated. That teaching goes along with the perfectionist teaching. That's, that we, we don't have sin in us anymore. That would make the Bible and God, as the author of the Bible, a liar. Because the, if we could just look at one little book, we'd look to 1 John, and John says very clearly, if you say you have no sin, you're a liar, and the truth is not in you. But we act sometimes like we don't really believe that. So as we're embarking on this new year, it seems good for us to be reminded that the old problem, sin, is still our present problem. And it can be closer than we think. Even as, you remember Jesus in Luke 17 was having to deal with this idea that the kingdom was some sort of something that would happen when Messiah came and it would just, it would be this certain thing. And, and Jesus says, no, uh, the, the kingdom, you're in the midst of the kingdom. We're not looking forward to a kingdom. Nothing in the Bible suggests that. Jesus said so much. Where I am, there, you're in the midst of the kingdom. Well, likewise, sin is in our midst too. And it's a creeping thing. It's lurking. And so we need to be aware of that. Later in chapter 5 of Romans, Paul's going to make an argument for the whole chapter about the solidarity of man with Adam. That there is no exemption. Everyone is in Adam. And because Adam has fallen, because Adam is just what we confessed we believed earlier, corrupt in his nature, corrupt in his will, corrupt in his intelligence, corrupt in every aspect, so too we are. But he's also going to offer the good news in Romans chapter 5. And the good news is all of his people are in Christ and have been saved from the effects of that sin. Not from the presence of it, but from the effects of it. Here, we get chapter 5 in just a summary statement in verse 9. All, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. That's actually a summary statement of what he develops in chapter 5 at length. But for us today, what I want us to do is simply consider two points, the two points that you see there. 
The first one is that every man is under the curse of sin, or all are under sin. And then the second, sin touches every part of man. There's nothing about us that's left apart from sin. We're touched in our totality. So the first thing, sin extends to every person. You see that. There is none righteous. And, and Paul does this understanding that there's going to be someone. There's going to be someone. When a preacher is preaching that says there's none righteous, and there's going to be someone thinking, well, I am. Because that's our tendency, is to think we're the exemption. We're the exception. Paul says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. And he does it again. Not even one. There's really no reason, biblically speaking, there is no reason why anyone should think, I'm okay, you're okay. There's no reason, biblically, that anyone should think everyone's basically good. Now, I can say that biblically. I could say that experientially, too. If you, you don't have to, you, you don't have to study history to know that. You can just look around you to know that. People are not basically good. We don't have to teach our children to do evil, to do bad. They do that naturally. And I say that loving children. No one loves children more than Presbyterians do. We take the Bible seriously about children. I'm actually getting a, a testimony out of the cry room about children naturally doing evil right now. I got some, got some charismatics waving their arms back there. <laughs> well, that's the first point, very simply put. There's none righteous. There's none who understand. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. And notice what he says. Together. See, it's a corporate thing. Yeah, it's individual, but it's also corporate. You know, there's a reason that people do horrific things and when they are gathered together in little groups or large groups, they tend to do worse things as they encourage one another, as they prompt one another, as they dare one another. Peer pressure is awful 
And it leads people to do worse things than they might do on their own. You see it right there. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So, yeah, it's an individual thing about sin, but it's also a corporate thing about sin. All are under sin. That's the reason Paul says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's arguing that grace, pure, sovereign, unaided grace, is all that can raise a person up out of this dead condition. But in order for you to understand how wonderful grace is and how necessary sovereignty is in the grace work, as he tells us how absolute sin is, how absolute damning sin is, and it touches all of us. There's no exceptions. Well, what does that mean then? It says there in the second point that sin touches every part of man. Every man is, is touched, affected by sin. And that's exactly what we see here. We are deleteriously affected in every part of our being. When we say that every man is a sinner... We're not saying that every man is as bad as he could possibly be. We're just saying that every man is in every part a sinner. We are affected in our whole beings. Our intellect is averse to right thinking about God. First, though, he starts with none is righteous. In other words, our, 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 our being and the things we do as sinful beings, are bad. They're wrong. They're not right. The prophet says, even when, even when, we, even when we do something that's right, they're for the wrong reasons. Our, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags because they're for the wrong reasons. And that can be true of Christians as well as unbelievers, y'all. We can be here in a worship service. One of the sad truths about standing up here is that you see people totally disengaged from the worship. They're sitting on their phones, some right now, I can see them. And I'm sure that they're not good at multitasking because no one is. So they're in a worship service, but they're not here for the right reason. So it's not righteousness. It's sin. And we sing. But we may sing because we just like to sing, not because we're singing to God. And sin. So we have to be ever so careful in all that we do to keep this in mind that our righteousness is not pure. But he moves on. Not only is that our righteousness what we do, but we don't, we don't comprehend it. We don't even sometimes understand it. 
And the fact is that's true for everyone. No one understands. And by the way, if you don't, if you don't think rightly and you don't, and you don't do rightly, then you're not certainly going to follow God rightly. No one follows God. No one seeks for God. You say, well, but, but there are passages like, you mentioned Matthew chapter 7 a while ago, and after that, judge not lest you be judged, Jesus says, seek and you shall find. Yeah, but he's, who's he talking to? He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to the people who are professing to be his followers. And he's telling them to ask. And you ask and you shall have and seek and you shall find. He's giving us, the regenerate, that call to seek. It's not something unbeliever does. not something a sinner does naturally. And here's the thing. Even as believers... We still don't seek God naturally. We seek God supernaturally. We seek God because the Spirit is prompting us to seek God. Now, the hymn we sing occasionally, I sought the Lord and afterwards I knew. He was seeking me to seek Him. we've all experienced that as believers. Righteousness, understanding, and will, seeking for God. You see, all of a sudden there, you've got, you've got the whole being. And then notice, their throat is an open grave. The things we say, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. The way of peace they have not known. Every part of us is touched. That's why Jesus had to come and take on human nature. Which means that he had a human intellect. He had a human emotion. He had human will brought in union with the divine, but he had to be totally, fully human so that he could save us in our totality. Or else, we'd, be in, we'd end up with a will that's not changed, or emotions that aren't changed, or an intellect that's not changed. He saves us in all these aspects. No wonder then Paul puts all this before us just before he moves on to the righteousness of God through faith in Christ. And he begins to tell us all about what Jesus has done for us. Because... We're not righteous, we don't understand. Because we're not righteous and we don't understand, we don't follow God as we should. And in contrast to seeking and following him, we do all those things. We shed blood. 
we say things that we, we shouldn't say. The things we say are full of curses and bitterness, Paul says. Whatever comes to his mind is what, what a man says. Every word, thought, and deed is lacking righteousness, holiness, and true knowledge. That's the old problem. And we're plagued with it. But I've told you the answer. The answer is Jesus Christ. But it's not just any Jesus. It's the Jesus who came from heaven, the second person of the Holy Godhead. He took on our human nature so that our intellect, our emotion, and our will could be saved. And we're enjoying the already aspect of that, but there's a not yet aspect that we're not. Because I said in the beginning, we're not glorified yet. Sin has not been eradicated from us, and we're not perfect yet. But there's a day coming when we will be. And I hope every believer, because this should be the testimony of every believer. Every believer should say, I can't, I can't wait. I'm looking forward to that. And I want to tell you, no matter how much you enjoy the beauty of this creation as it is now, it's going to be better. And no, much how, how, no, no matter how much you enjoy some of the wonderful things that you get to do, they're going to be better. That's the reason the Apostle John could say at the very end, even so come Lord Jesus. We have a wonderful life that he's given us here to live. But it's going to be better if you're in Christ Jesus. Because everything that started for us now, remember what Paul says in Philippians? He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. It's not complete yet. And every believer sitting here will say amen. They know looking in the mirror of God's word every day, yep, it's certainly not complete. I'm still in progress. And the progress is kind of slow sometimes, isn't it? But he's doing that work in us. That's who we are. We have many wonderful children in this church. Here's the conclusion. This is my application. I saved almost all the application to the end. I don't usually do that. I usually kind of sprinkle it all through. But I decided here in the beginning of the year was a good time. We've not done this for a while. To emphasize our children. Again, Psalm 127 is about the children being a godly heritage, a great gift. And we look around, I look across the room right now, and I look beyond out into the cry room, and we have been blessed greatly with many, many, many children. And particularly the little ones. So I'm not talking particularly about you big children or you old children. 
but we have a lot of children in this wonderful church called Covenant. And we need to be reminded, as our confession reminds us, as we have, have, we have, as we have confessed, as we've talked here in the scripture, that our children possess these same sinful tendencies. And we as adults continue to struggle with these same sin problems. And so we must not only preach and teach the truth to one another and to our children and call one another to faith, but we have to protect one another from these same sinful tendencies. That's why we have the child protection policy in place at Covenant Presbyterian Church, to protect us, to protect one another, and particularly protect those who cannot protect themselves. We're coming upon a date here in January where Christians in general and and pro-life people who may not be Christians but who believe in the sanctity of life, we recognize how important it is that we as a nation do what we need to do to protect children in the womb. But we need to not forget that children outside the womb need protecting also. Thou shalt not steal pertains, doesn't it? We're not to steal the innocence of children. Now there, I'm not talking about they're not sinners. I'm not talking about innocence in the sense of sin, but innocence as little ones. And so we do what we do around here, not to... Not to hurt the fellowship of the church, but to enhance the fellowship of the church. Because I'm going to tell you something. Nothing can harm the fellowship of church more so and quicker than if people are harmed in the midst of the church. You're not going to have good fellowship if people are hurting one another. So if we want to enhance the fellowship, we want to protect one another, and particularly our children. And so you see in the announcement there that one of the ways we protect our children is for you parents to be sure that you go to the Sunday school class when it's over and get your children. We don't let you send your older siblings to go get your children. Likewise for the nursery. We don't let you send your older, the older siblings to the nursery to get the children. But you go, you turn in your beeper and you pick up your children. That's a pretty good exchange, don't you think? an impersonal beeper for a wonderful, precious child. And you know that they're safe. And then you watch them, you take care of them. You keep them in sight so that they're not susceptible to the acts of sinful people. And you say, boy, this is, you've really closed on a downer, Pastor. That we have sinful people all around here? Yeah, just look. If, if can't see any around you, you can take your glasses off and look in sort of a mirror there. You can see yourself in there. It, folks, back to my associate reform friend, we, don't we believe this stuff? That there is none righteous, not even regenerate people are completely righteous? None of us have been totally glorified 
totally sanctified, totally having sin eradicated from us. The person who thinks he is not susceptible to a fall has already fallen. We have this wonderful policy in hand to remind us, and we put these announcements in the bulletin occasionally to remind us who we are. We're sinners, saved by the grace of God so that we can love our children and care for our children and not only teach our children by word about the Lord Jesus Christ and his love for them, but we can We can show our children the love of Christ with our deeds as well. That's about the most extended conclusion I've ever made. And the most specific application. But here at the beginning of the year, our children are worth it, aren't they? The Lord Jesus Christ loved the children. You know, the disciples... Disciples had uh, bought into 20th century children's church. And so the children started heading up like they did in the Old Covenant, of course. You read all about the children being there at everything. And the children started coming up to Jesus on one of his teaching occasions, and the the disciples were, were trying to shuffle them off to children's church. And Jesus said, do not forbid the children from coming to me. Elsewhere, he commended the children, saying that we are to have faith like a child. The scripture is clear. The Lord loves his people, even his little lambs. And we're supposed to love his people the way Christ loved us, even to death. Father, thank you for this day, for this opportunity to be reminded of how terrible sin can be, but also how wonderful your grace can be as we encourage one another and care for one another and defend one another and protect one another. May we never forget. May our feet not be swift to shed blood or to, to, to allow others to shed blood. May our paths not run to ruin and misery, but may we always be looking for the way of peace because we have trusted the Prince of Peace. We pray this in his name. Amen.